This life was revealed, and we have seen it and testified to it, and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. We declare to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we had heard from Him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him while we are walking in darkness, we lie and do not do what is true. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we have deceived ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is a word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now the founding figure of our denomination, John Wesley, he felt that First John offered the best description and the depth of God's nature and love out of all that we find in the Scriptures. He once wrote, If the preacher would imitate any part of the oracles of God above all the rest, let it be the first epistle of St. John. Now, we did not hear from the fourth chapter of St. John this morning, but it's worth sharing with you as well because it gets to the heart of what I hope and anticipate you will hear over the next few weeks and during Joy's Bible study on one night as we go through 1 John together and, and encourage you to read that in, on your time and discuss that as a family as well. But in the fourth chapter, we hear these words. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Everyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now, there's two times in all the scriptures we hear this phrase that God is love. And I find that interesting and unique and, and quite important, actually. It defines who God is, and it's only found here in 1 John. And here, as we've heard already, for this author, this idea of love, it's more than passion and something that is attractive or gives us joy, although it may be that. Right from the beginning, we are meant to see that love is something that is practical, it's visible, it's seeable, it's even a patterned way of life and living that we can touch and see and feel. He focuses a lot on this idea that we hear in John that Jesus is the word that became flesh to this teaching. You and I often love many things, right? We love anything from, from pizzas to puppies to people, right? Love is something that satisfies us, that attracts us, that draws us in, that brings us something that draws us to one another. I had the honor two weeks ago officiating my nephew and now my, my new niece's wedding. 
And I always at weddings love them because I'm reminded that Jesus often used weddings to teach us about the nature of God and the kingdom of God. And 600 times almost in the Bible, we hear this word love. And 170 of those are in the Psalms. The Song of Solomon evokes this passionate love affair between two people in order to try to give us some idea of the passionate love that God has for us. Where the Greeks were Stoics and refrained from passions and feelings and emotions, seeing them as encumbrances, not so with our scripture stories of God. God embraces them all. For God, this passion and these feelings like love lead to some of the most wonderful and sometimes terrifying moments. God's deep love for Israel led God to provide for them manna from heaven and and quail from nowhere when they were hungry and starving. He provided water out of rocks. He freed them from the bondage of slavery in Israel because he loved them so much. But God could be jealous, right? The same passion, the same emotion of love also led God to send destructive waters across all the lands, almost completely destroying creation itself. Love can be a very, very unpredictable thing, right? There's a wildness to God. There's a wildness to love that seems to be beyond our control, right? Love kind of takes control of us, right? It doesn't happen the other way around always. So as followers of Christ, as Christians, what do we mean when we use the word love? What does it mean to be loved? What does it mean to be loving, in fact? Love is what inspires this letter, of course. Now, if we get to the matter at hand of why this was written, there's not a lot of evidence to tell us what was going on that was so problematic for those who were leaving the community. Although we do know that there are those who are leaving this Christian community in the day, and and this letter is written trying to convince them to don't, don't do that. You need to stay. And we know that these dissenters... They did not believe that Jesus was fully human, divine, but not human. And this mattered to them because they understood humanity to have been touched by sin. And therefore, if Jesus were human, that meant he was touched by sin. So they had to understand Jesus in that way, divine, but not human. And they themselves, who had become followers of Christ, they were living good lives, exemplary lives. They didn't see that sin was bothering them and a part of their life, but there were those around them for which that was true. We have no reason to believe that it wasn't. But even for them, if they had been touched before, now that they're followers of Christ, they felt like they were above the fray, if you will. The problem with this was they began to see people in their own community in a way that was hurtful, sinful even. They felt that they could no longer associate with those folks. So they had to leave in order to protect their own spirituality, you might say. They were taken too seriously, the false notion of guilt by association, we might say. Now, you see, Jesus faced this too, if we recall. Jesus was ridiculed for those he hung with. He was called a drunkard, and they made fun of how much he ate, and he, he talked to Samaritans, and he hung out and he gave a lot of attention to those who were less than spiritual. He often approached the Pharisees and 
tried to help them see that even though they seemed to have a lot of spiritual prowess, their prowessness, their spirituality didn't make them any closer to God than anyone else. In fact, they had more sins than they realized. They just couldn't see them, right? Jesus was always up against this problem. So this author of 1 John wants to set things straight, as he says. Now, in other epistles, as I've mentioned, the sins and the moral codes that are broken were related to bear and listed and talked about specifically. But here, there's just one problem. There's one sin. There's one brokenness. And that's, first of all, denying that they had sin. And secondly, hating brothers and sisters whom they saw sin working in their lives. This was their sin. Now, this reminded me of a man named uh, A.J. Jacobs. He gained a little bit of notoriety a few years ago for trying to go an entire year living perfectly by every letter of the Scriptures. Maybe you've heard his book. He was, had a Jewish background, and so he was going to try his best to live every Mosaic law out ideally and perfectly, spot on, one year. And I've not read his book, and I don't know much about him, but I have heard him speak in interviews and read a few of his quotes, but he really learned quickly that this task was daunting. And it was impossible. He says at one point that what he began to realize is every time he avoided one sin, he found out he had actually committed another one without even knowing it, trying to follow the letter of the law. And it was impossible to do this. Now this is, in short, what's being levied on this group in 1 John. You think you're foot in sin, but you're not. In fact, the act that you're doing is what's causing you to sin. And likewise, we too, if we're not careful, if we're not mindful, we can begin to avoid fellowshipping with those whom we believe struggle with sin. We can begin to tear ourselves that our faith is based on us doing everything right and perfect. And when we do, we fall victim. You and I, in all of our attempts to be faithful, to be loving, to be good, can't we just continue to find ways to hurt nonetheless? Don't we still say or do or think the wrong things well before we know it? I think this is what John has pointed out for us today. That we are those who know that we still walk in the darkness. Even so, we also, and at the same time, we walk in the light of Christ in our attempts to be loving, are we ever really 100% sure that we're in fact motivated by love? Deep down, can we not have motives for doing good? Can we not do things that are a bit self-serving, driven by fear, are hollow in nature? Can we not try our best to be loving, but often expecting and to be loved back, which is not love at all, and somehow making love into this transaction, that if I love you, then you must love me back. There's a novel written in the mid-80s called Continental Drift, and the main character's name is Bob Du Bois. Bob has a hard time knowing whether or not he is good or not, loving or unloving, throughout this book, and He's not a man of faith. He doesn't have a spiritual grounding for what love is. So he tries to be a good man, a loving man, based on what the world around him tells him is loving or good or right. 
He relies upon avoiding known cultural taboos, the things that people tell you you definitely should not do. And as time goes, he becomes, in the eyes of everyone, quite a good man, loving man even. But deep down, he continues to have this nagging feeling that his, all his attempts to be good and to be loving has its root in being afraid of not being so. Our relationship with God and love, again, if we're not mindful, can find the same roots. In truth, we are those who struggle to love at times, perhaps at all times, but that does not mean that God's love cannot, God's perfect love cannot work through you and I. And when we come to this table today, when we break bread, we are acknowledging, as we have in our confession, that when our love fails, God's love remains steadfast. And in this, we find a crucial mooring for our ability to love. In Christ, we have our spiritual grounding. We know what it is to love. As someone named Tussaud once wrote, true love cannot be found where it does not exist, nor can it be denied where it does. Love, the light of God, as the author of our text today reminds us, it is seeable, it is touchable, it is knowable, it is undeniable. You know it when you see it. But in order to see it, we must learn to love and look through our brokenness we must learn to look beyond our own and each other's mistakes and sinfulness and look for God's light still shining within us. Now, this letter mentions sin a lot. I don't think I've said sin this much in one sermon in, in years. And the irony of that, this is a letter about love. Twenty times in five really short verses, he talks about sin. But what I think he's trying to help us to see is the reality of our brokenness in the light of Christ. So I do believe that the grace in our text today is that Jesus is our mark. He is our advocate. He is the one who bears and overcomes the marks of our sins. As John writes, if we walk in the light as he is the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sins. And I think what he's trying to convey to us here is that we who have given ourselves to Christ and to each other in doing so, we know the darkness still, but we can also choose the light. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote, being a Christian does not add anything to the human being, but it puts our humanity in full force. And this matters, I believe, because the Gospels teach us that our grasp of love, it must exist in our humanity. It's not this spiritual understanding of God and Jesus and love. It's important that we understand that Jesus is fully human and fully divine. Love, as Christ has lived it and shown it to us, it is transcendent, it is divine, it is a mystery. It's more than we can fathom, but we can know it, we can see it, and it must be lived out squarely in the human realm. Now, John Wesley, he reminded us, of course, earlier that First John is the best source of understanding of God's loving nature through all the Bible. 
Even so, he once discovered that he himself lacked faith. He did not love others as he should love others, and he, he came to realize that about himself. And he had a few spiritual crises over the year, and this was one of the better known ones. But in discovering this about himself, he learned that he could look at others and assume that they lacked faithfulness. He pointed out all that was wrong with them, and he did it a lot, I suppose. And he realized that he still had places in his own life that needed tending to and where he lacked faith. And so he worried. Seeing that he didn't have faith, should he be in ministry anymore? Should he preach? Maybe he needed to stop until he had perfected his faith. So he reached out to a friend named Peter Bowler. And Wesley wrote that immediately, it struck into my mind, leave off preaching. How can you, John, preach to others? You who have no faith yourself. I asked Bowler whether he thought I should leave it off or not. And Bowler answered, by no means. And Wesley said, but what can I preach? He said, preach faith till you have it. And then because you have it, you will preach faith. And I want to offer that we can exchange some words here. I think we can exchange love for faith and live with preach. And I think we can live love until we have it. And then because we have it, we will live love Two, it is a wise and a good and a right thing to search our hearts, discern our motives, and confess that our love sometimes falls short. We do not always love our neighbor. Yes, we often find our love is not perfect. Yet the practice of listening and meditating and confessing this truth, naming such things, it becomes our guide. And I want to offer to us, that we do not have to deceive ourselves into thinking that we are totally without sin. But I also want to offer, we need not think that we are unlovable or unloving because we fail at times. I want to suggest that such psychological and spiritual gymnastics are no longer or never necessary, not at all helpful. Someone once wrote that we will appreciate the good news of Easter a whole lot more if we acknowledge the oft-sad truth about our brokenness. It's a logical part of celebrating Easter, and it's a necessary forerunner of the crucifixion. But beyond the logic, honesty about our need for grace is finally also an engine for joy. And I would add a path towards understanding the God that is love. Now, one of the prevailing questions that we often ask as Christians is, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Another form of that question is, why did God want Jesus to die the way he died? I want to come to believe that there's a better way to ask that question. I would suggest that a better way to ask that is to ask, why did God want Jesus to live the reality of the kingdom, live the kindness that identified him, live as one of us, while knowing that we would not and could not love him back? Why did God do that? And I want to give Frederick Bauerschmidt room to make the answer for us today. He says, God wants Jesus to live this way so that he can show us what life in the kingdom of God, a truly human life, is all about. And not simply to show us, 
but also to forge a path for us into that kingdom to give us a way to be what God created us to be. If you and I are going to make the love of God shine incarnate and visible among us, I do believe we must understand that the world that we are called to love will never love us back as we hope it might. And even when the world does love us back, it'll probably be incomplete. Only God's love is complete. But the good news is that love has been given to us fully. That love that you and I long for, seek for, ask for, live for, it has been given to us in fullness through Jesus Christ. It is no longer a love. It is no longer grace that we're striving for, only able to receive it. And because we have been loved perfectly by God, we can serve others. We can love our enemies. We can live a life of sacrifice because we don't expect to be loved back anymore. We've already received it, right? So the invitation today is to always choose love, but without seeking to be loved, without making someone prove they love you, because friends, God loves you, God is love, and he has given it to you in fullness. Thanks be to God. Amen.